Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Paul Teske with us. Now, Paul is the Senior Director of Engagement at the Teaching Channel. He guides states, districts, and school partners in using Teaching Channel resources and platform in a relevant and impactful way. In short, he acts as a thought partner to those who are trying to change their professional development model to a set of experiences that are relevant to teachers and provide them with the instructional resources they need through video models and job embedded inquiry. Previously, Paul served as the Director of School Partnerships at EduCurious. He was also the Educational Technology Instructor at the University of Washington's Teacher Education Program, the K 8 Program Manager for Technology. Access Foundation that serves low-income students in South Seattle and an R&D specialist for Renaissance Learning. He started his career as a high school and a vocational college English teacher in Minnesota and Washington. Paul holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of Washington, a certificate in post-secondary teaching, a master's in English from the University of St. Thomas, and a B.A. in English and political science from St. Cloud State University. Paul has spent most of his career in support of adult learners and leaders. He might be best described as the Man Friday for Educators which means that he helps educators tease through complex issues. Trust and building community is a cornerstone of this work, and without it, relationships fizzle. He is constantly trying to find ways to bring educators and leaders together to learn from each other and build networks for support. Paul is constantly grappling with how collaboration and sharing become the norm rather than the exception in educational communities. So welcome, Dr. Paul Teske. How are you? I'm fine today. How are you? Great. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I think I am. I think you are too. You have your headset on. You're ready to go. I am. Okay. So let them rip. All right. So Paul, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? It's interesting that you say it's a path to leadership because I often don't see myself so much as a leader as supporting leaders. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my career has really focused on that, actually. It hasn't been so much getting out in front of a room and guiding people along, even though I think I do by the edges and surround mm-hmm. them and sort of herd them in sort of like a sheepdog. Right. <laughs> but you know, a sheepdog has leadership skills. Yes. You might have to convince me 
No, but I would say that uh, is really been in support of them and watching being around good leaders too. Starting early on in college and working in while I was in grad school, helping put on conferences and shepherding people through and helping them out with their courses and so forth. And that just grew over time. Um, now I'm guiding people at a national level, which I think is kind of interesting mm-hmm. and supporting them the best I can. So it's kind of the way the work has fallen. It's mm-hmm. sort of really working with people who are in leadership roles and being a thought partner to them and a consultant to them. So what is it that you're doing now? Well, now I guide states and districts in how to do professional development differently and change sort of the sit and get model to being more online and blended and job embedded and inquiry based. So rather than teachers going to an all day session and being talked to and digesting, what we try to get at is helping the teachers actually apply that in the classroom and think reflectively about that work that they're doing. So it doesn't end when you leave the door of the professional development session, but rather practicing those, engaging with the different strategies and refining them over time. And so that's what I do is I sort of help districts re-envision how they do things, sometimes even states like I work with the state of Alaska on that. And it's super interesting work and everyone sort of needs support in it because it's a game changer and it changes the way that they do things. It really changes the system. When you say, I'm going to move more of my work online, we're going to use video. And of course, video sort of can frighten people if the proper trust and foundation isn't there. So building those communities so they feel as if they can take that and run with it mm-hmm. and make people feel comfortable with it because it can be slightly uncomfortable. And it's really interesting work. I'm constantly surprised by teachers and leadership and how far they bring it mm-hmm. and how they often do productive risk in their work and how to help them along in that is fascinating to me. Um, and I learn every day from them. I think what you're doing is incredibly important work. I love how you described a couple of things that you do. And it's so much a part of the character of a leader. You talked about shepherding. And that's what a good leader does. They shepherd people. They empower people. That's what you talked about. You talked about guiding, supporting, and being a thought partner. And all those things are what resonate with me when I think about a leader. And also, you know, one of the things you talked about is how you value people, the people you just spoke about, the teachers and the leaders, valuing them, learning from them and continuing to learn. And those are all things that I value in a leader. And that for me, makes a leader strong. So I'm very excited to have you on the podcast and excited about the things you're already giving us. So that's very nice of you to say. (laughs) Let's let's do this. All right. So, Paul, how would you describe your leadership style? Well, one of the things that I think is part of my DNA is listening. And I think that is primary on top of the board for a leader to really listen and to digest and not speak too soon. I think sometimes with leadership, there's this tendency to say, oh, I have to be out in front of this and I have to guide it really quickly and push it along and all the rest of that. But I think listening is a super important skill for a person to have as a leader is to really hear the stories and hear where people are coming from and the troubles that they're having and the issues 
things that are going well, things that are troublesome, things they wonder about, questions they have, and work with them and through them on those questions that they have. But listening is at the core of that, is to really understand where they're coming from, because all sorts of things can go wrong if you don't. So I would say that's primary. I also think looking out for opportunities for them. So and making the connections between things and between different groups. I find that I do a lot of that sort of like trying to connect the dots between the work of different people and different organizations and how they can benefit from each other and learn from each other. So an example of bringing folks together is we had this grant from the Stewart Foundation in Oakland to bring districts together to learn from one another around their EL practices and strategies with their teachers. In California, they have a new set of standards for ELs in EL instruction that's infused the common core with good practices around ELL. And I wanted these folks to come together and talk to each other. And most people are kind of like, well, that's just sort of icing. Mm -hmm. We'll do that later. But they came and they presented and they learned so much from each other. And so making those connections between, I think, is another super important trait of a good leader. Bringing people together, finding those opportunities and helping them grow and learn flexibility is another one. You know, well, you might come up with a particular framework or an idea where you want people to go, but knowing that that's just a draft and knowing that that's going to change and sometimes completely and being comfortable with that is, I also think, pretty important. In fact, I've noticed throughout my career that I used to call it the pigeon method in that, have you ever seen shooting of clay pigeons? Mm -hmm. Leaders often throw out those clay pigeons and it's up to everybody else to shoot them down. <laughs> that's kind of the way I see it. Right. And some make it through and some don't. And that's okay. But that's part of the process is really interrogating different frameworks or different ideas. And that's how things become stronger. And not being afraid of that because it's really easy because people put so much of their time and effort in being into those projects oftentimes that letting go of whatever structures or ideas or concepts you come up with and letting the group play with them is important. You're spot on because I think a lot of people, maybe when they invest so much time, they get stuck on something, on an idea, on a concept because so much time has been invested. But I love how you talked about being flexible and kind of even pulling back and sometimes embracing failure. Sometimes your idea doesn't work. And you let it go and you have that flexibility. So I really appreciate that. Now, you work for the teaching channel? Yeah, I work for the teaching channel. I'm the senior director of engagement there. I've been with them for about four years. Every day is super exciting and every day is new there, I have to say. And like I was saying, I get to work with such interesting people like Jen and Aaron from Oceanside, for instance, who are on your show. They're amazing amazing people to work with and Mm -hmm. super generative and super caring about their profession and what they do, as well as for other people. They're compassionate people wonderful folks. Great. And they recommended you. So that's awesome. All right. So Paul, what type of leader are you inspired by? And why? Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting, because when I think about the leaders that I look up to, most of them tend to be women. And I've thought about this. And I wondered, why would this be? Except for maybe Barack Obama. I can't think of a lot of male leaders that I look up to. And it could be around the people that I'm around too. You know, Mm -hmm. it has something to do with the openness of communication 
and the building of community as part of it. Hmm. So it's not again, like Dudley Do-Right out there in front, Mm -hmm. but rather leading from within and being a part of and taking you along with them as part of the ride and being perfectly honest about where things are, but also having a direction of some sort to go towards without again, the lack of variance from that. So knowing but being flexible again, I really respect that. And I super respect humor along the way as part of that, I think is super important. And commitment uh, to, I think, probably a greater purpose within that at a high level. You know what I'm talking about? That Mm -hmm. high, high level where there's a direction, there's a purpose to the work. I think I respond to very well. And so thinking through my past, the women who have inspired me again, I think Jen and Aaron have mentioned Erica Nielsen Andrew, who I worked with at Teaching Channel for four years. She's an amazing leader in that way and so smart and brilliant and really at the core of it tries to build community before she moves on to anything else um, because that's where trust resides. Mm -hmm. Another person who I super respect that was actually a classmate of mine and back in pre-K Mm-hmm. And her dad was my algebra teacher, but now she's, I think, the VP of the AFT, Mary Catherine Ricker, mm-hmm. who I see on the evening news now. And her purpose is so defined and it's so simple, the articulation of her message, that I really respect that. I think her style is built into community as well. And then finally, another person that I used to work with at the University of St. Thomas, her name is Lenny Rulis, who was big into thinking about women leaders at the college level and how to open space for them and break through some of those barriers. She was a fantastic leader, and I actually miss her quite a bit. That's what I aspire to and look up to in the leader. And, you know, Paul, I mean, I haven't known you for too long, a few minutes, but it's pretty clear that you aspire to be like the leaders who inspire you, where you build community, where you're shepherding people, guiding people, supporting people, and moving in a direction together. Um, So thank you so much for that. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received? Don't take yourself too seriously. I don't know if somebody said that outrightly or if that's something that I just picked up <laughs> through the way they responded to me. But I think that's pretty important because I can get that way if I'm really too narrow-minded about things. I think also is to find fun in the work. So Erica, when I think about working with her, I was talking to my mom one day. She was like, so you have this new job. You know, how do you like it? And she goes, what are you learning? And I said, I'm learning to enjoy work. I'm learning to laugh at work. I'm learning to not be so serious. And knowing that that seriousness can reside next to laughter and it doesn't diminish it at all. And she's like, well, it sounds like a pretty good thing to learn. And uh, that's one of those things that I've learned along the way, I think, from the folks is to not be so buttoned up. Um, It's okay to show flaws. It's also okay to be fun and enjoy and demonstrate that to the world is not a problem. If people don't like that, it's usually because <laughs> they're stuffy it. and they lack humor. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, to, uh, to have a little fun. That's perfect, Paul, because that's exactly when we learn the most, when we're having fun at what we're doing, right? That's and the, what they say. Well, this platform, education, 
is an area where we need to have fun. Great advice. It's one of those things that it's, it builds community too, right? So Mm -hmm. those social emotional triggers are all right there. If you don't feel as if you belong, if you don't feel like you can express and smile, there is something wrong with that. I think Mm -hmm. it stifles a lot. I've seen it in my own son, you know, with classrooms that he's been in. So it's super important. So Paul, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Well, this isn't so much about leadership as it is around the idea of developing expertise. And it's a quote that I remember from grad school from John Bransford. He's a famous learning scientist. A lot of people have read his work and it's really influenced a lot of how we teach math and reading and so forth. He's a great guy. And in one of his books, it's how people learn. He says, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. And what he means by that is that if you are constantly focused on practicing without any sort of adjustment or feedback along the way, that those bad habits become routinized and you don't grow and you don't become better. And so it's that idea of feedback. It's that idea of conversation about one's practice that actually push you to becoming better. And I've used that again and again. I think it's a brilliant quote and a brilliant story from a brilliant man, actually. And it just so happens that it works for leadership, too. I think think it really does. I think so. So, Paul, I'm sure in the work that you do, you have to pull teams together. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? It's something that I'm still trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are natural at it. I don't think I'm really natural at it. Part of it is building that core community and making people feel as if they can express and talk and share starting every meeting with going around and figuring out how people are and things that are in their lives, whether it be part of work or not, I think is important. And then from that, there's also this tenant that we have that I developed with Erica, actually, and it's based on theory and research, but it's very simple at the core, which is as part of a group, you need to have a purpose. Like if it's a formalized group as part of an educational movement or initiative, it has to have a purpose. Any group that doesn't have a purpose will flounder. And it sounds really funny and elementary, but it's surprising to me how many groups actually exist without any purpose. The other is process. So what do we do here together? Mm -hmm. And what are the things that we follow as part of that work? And then that third element is that community element, which is the building of trust and relationships. So it's almost the fuel for the purpose to take hold and ignite through the process. So I really feel as if when I'm guiding districts, if we come back to those three things, which are very simple, and it goes from the very top, whether or not you're like a superintendent or in charge of something at a state level, you have to express and articulate the purpose, you have to articulate a process, and you have to build community with that, um, your group of followers and the people that will help champion the work. And then even at the core value of a classroom, it's the same thing. So a teacher that doesn't have a purpose for a lesson, what happens? If it doesn't have a process for a lesson, it doesn't build community, what happens? So I feel like that moves vertically across all those different groups. And so it's something that I keep in mind as I'm doing my own work as well. Um, Building trust and relationships isn't simple. What is your thinking when you start with a new school district to start moving forward and building that team? Again, it starts with the listening. But a lot of the conversations that I have up front, I have a whole series of questions that I ask, but usually they run across 
and are connected to um, Noster's chart of complex change. And there's like, I don't know, seven different domains within that. And usually when people are thinking about any initiative that they're wanting to push forward with, they really should take a look at this. And again, a leader that I very much respect, Erica Nielsen-Andrew, showed me this. I think it really speaks to people too. And a lot of people know about it, but they've sort of tuck it into their bookshelf and then forget about it. Vision, for example, you need to have a vision for the project. You need to have a strategy is another one. You need to have motivation incentive for people to participate in it, whether it be financial or it could be just motivation because they're getting something out of it, you know, that's uh, emotional or a feeling a need for them. The other is community is in there and culture, you know, because you need to build that cultural element skill. So if people don't have the skills to engage with it, there can be a great deal of frustration around that. The other is resources to fulfill that need, whether it be time or whether it be human resources that can actually have the capacity to do things. All those things factor into and need to be accounted for when doing some sort of implementation and guiding a group through. And when you think through those parts and you see where there's gaps, you can then troubleshoot. Those are always fascinating conversations to have that sort of light up the room Mm -hmm. as they're working through because it's a nice structure to work Mm -hmm. from. Great. Here's a quick message to help you start 2018 strong. I'm launching new mastermind groups in January 2018 that will help you grow your influence, whether you're an educator, administrator, or just hungry to grow. Take advantage of our early bird registration and sign up for a group that fits your schedule. Go to masterleadership.org and select masterminds. Now, Paul, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? So the challenges that I can think of are primarily personal rather than professional. In growing up in a rural area of Minnesota, as well as influencing me in my teaching, was actually being a gay man and coming out. It was hugely challenging. And back in the 80s when I was in high school, there was very few role models for kids. They didn't see being gay in a good light at all. At the time, uh, the AIDS epidemic was in full swing. And so there's a certain cloud and blanket over that community. And what I was saying there is that those sorts of experiences sort of hit you at your core and really can play a huge role in your psyche Mm -hmm. insofar as being quiet, let's say, and not putting yourself out there, wanting to blend in and not taking risks or wanting to just be left alone and put on an island for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. Seeing that too. So those experiences have greatly influenced me as a human being and how I relate to people, Mm -hmm. but have also probably opened up a fair amount of openness in me too, where I think people feel as if they can also tell me the struggles that they're having or come to me without judgment on matters that are really impacting them in their lives. And so I think there's an openness there that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise if I wasn't gay. I think I bring that to the world and probably into my leadership. So, Yeah, what I hear is an acute sense of self-awareness, having gone through that, but also an ability to connect with other people. Would you say that? Yes, or at least a willingness to and not coming in guarded. I think what I come in guarded is really around, and this is probably related to the men comment and men leadership, mm-hmm 
is not really trusting them. So this much. is a therapy session here. It is. You know, I think it, we'll you help know, each other. Every, every conversation I have is basically a therapy session. <laughs> People <laughs> can attest to that. Uh-huh. Uh, I really appreciate how you're sharing your heart because there are listeners who are going through similar things. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Paul, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Uh, Sure. And I'll probably tell the story through the other people that I work with and their successes because I kind of feel like I'm with them on that journey rather than guiding them full force. But there's this group of teachers and district and outside of LA, they're called Upland Unified. And Jen Morris was a teacher there who used to lead their math initiatives and so forth. She's back in the classroom and doing also district work now. But when I first met them, they didn't have a official professional learning trajectory for their teachers. In fact, they did very little of it. And so it was almost like coming in and having a clean slate. Like there wasn't a lot of history and baggage to things. So you could kind of shape and build. But what I loved about working with them, and probably one of the reasons why I see them as being so successful, is the willingness to take risks and the willingness to try and have ideas constantly. It's like they can't turn off the faucet of ideas And it's wonderful because they'll grab something and then just go with it. It's so fun to watch people who are ignited, who have ideas that they think are going to excite other people. And that becomes infectious. And that's what I love watching about them. So while it's not necessarily what I would say is my success, it's our success in building that together and watching it grow over time. It's super fun to watch. You know, there's other groups, too, like the state of Alaska, who are in a similar position. You know, these are teachers that are spread out by thousands of miles. You know, you place Alaska on the map of the United States, and it goes from Florida almost all the way to California. It's that big. Mm -hmm. And there's only 8,000 teachers in that entire state. So Mm -hmm. you have teachers in very remote areas, and they're trying to figure out how do we make them feel as if they're part of a community of teachers, even though they may be teaching by themselves in a one-room schoolhouse. So puzzling through that and bringing that network together is super important. And I gained so much energy from watching them do their work too. And being in on those conversations, I feel like it's an honor to be part of those conversations with them and working with them. So maybe I'm piggybacking on their success, but... But you know what, Paul, I'm (laughs) sitting here listening to this portion and I love how even though you see it as their success. You were part of this, a big part of this, because you had a vision and you knew that they could do it. And so I really applaud you because that's what a great leader does. They love watching other people succeed and forge forth in their vision. And so I've been watching you throughout this interview. You love people. You're very curious about people. You value people. And those are the things that I admire in a leader. So I really want to thank you for all you do. Well, thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate the time with you. And I'm glad that you're honoring leadership because it's not often talked about. What would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Uh, patience, listening, and working around the edges and um, finding out the underlying and undermining elements of why things aren't working the way they are. 
and helping with that shift. That's a complex one. I'm not sure I figured that out. I mean, every system is so different and every culture is so different. I mean, there's certainly overlapping attributes, but to be able to figure that out and talk through that with other people, I think that's a really important thing. So if you are in a situation like that, like I'm thinking about one that I'm in right now, helping a district where they just haven't made traction with some stuff. And a lot of it is the cultural aspect. Mm-hmm is having somebody to talk to about it sometimes will shake things loose. And I think that was what I would suggest for people is to have people to talk to about it and process what you're seeing and understanding of the situation. Great. Thank you so much for that. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Well, what it means to me is I see it in action. I see it every day. Like I was saying, it's something that Every day has another challenge that I've not been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And I'd imagine that most people feel that way. At least I'm hoping they do, because I think it's one of the things that sort of enlivens the soul a bit. Mm -hmm. To be learning is actually to be living. And I think that's the coolest part of that whole thing. I love that. There's your quote. There's a quote by Paul (laughs) Teske. To be learning is actually to be living. I love that. My new quote. Oh, good. I'm glad that we can put it on a plaque somewhere. Um, (laughs) uh, What am I learning now? Gosh, I'm learning about grant work, which is brand new to me. And how to navigate that space is very interesting. And again, every funder is very different in their approach and how they work. So there is nothing that is constant about anything, I'm afraid, which is pretty cool when you think about it. Um, I was going to say, it seems like that's where you thrive when things aren't stagnant, right? And constantly shifting. Yeah. When they are the same, I think I do get bored, actually. Mm -hmm. I think most people do. And that's why it's good to switch things up a bit. Okay. So, Paul, if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Oh, there's a number of things. I think one of the things would be laying off on assessments to the degree that the culture has changed and shifted so much since I was in education, even, you know, 15 years ago. And it's not necessarily a standards problem. It's an assessment problem as far as I'm concerned, is that there's just too much focus and thought and emphasis placed in that area, not on learning. And the two can go hand in hand, but I don't think it's the right type of assessment that we're doing oftentimes. So... I think there needs to be a change in that space. I also think there needs to be a change in classroom size. When you have 30 or 40 kids in a classroom, all with different needs and coming from different families and backgrounds, that's really a horrible situation for a teacher to be in. And while they've been doing it like champs, it makes it difficult for learning and it becomes less efficient. And then finally, I'm a big proponent. I love project-based learning. And for kids to get their hands in there and dirty and understanding different components and action and application, that I feel can really ignite minds. And I've seen that in my past too. So those three. Okay, wonderful. So Paul, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, I think a classic out there that a teacher should read or at least chapters in it because it talks really about how we got to where we are in education, uh, which is much more of an industrial model for the most part, where kids are just going through and 
teachers are complicit in that, even though they don't want to be, um, is Tinkering Toward Utopia by David Tyack and Larry Cuban, which is kind of a classic. I think that was written in the early 90s, maybe. But it really does show the different movements and influences in education that came from business as well as parents and how we really shaped what education looks like. I think once you understand that, it's easier to sort of push back against it. So I think it's a great book. It reminds me of a TED Talk by Ken Robinson. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh Thank you so much for that. Now, Paul, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? Now, do you work from home? I do work from home. Okay. So that's a different challenge. It can be a curse. Uh (laughs) It's not because I'm distracted. It's because I surround myself by it all the time. I have problems sleeping. And so I wake up and really what I should do is like go for a walk or go work out. But no, I start working right away. And so my doctor has said that I really should clear my mind because it's going to be a lifesaver. And I actually think that a lot of teachers and leaders struggle from the same thing. So one of the things that I'm trying to do more is clear my mind through exercise, get to know me again, Perhaps even one of these days I'll get to meditation, (laughs) but I haven't got there yet, but I am trying to clear my mind and to treat myself and my body better. And I think that's super important because if that doesn't function, a lot of the other things in your life don't either. Mm. So, okay. So I work from home as well. And so some of the challenges that I come across is, you know, prioritizing and taking breaks. Do you have a system for that? What do you do to keep yourself (laughs) on task? I actually don't have too much trouble with task, but what I do find is that I get interrupted. And so Mm. a path that I have started for the day oftentimes veers because of some emergency And this happens, I think, across the board for people, whether they work at home or not. But rather trying to keep your core and trying to finish at least one thing a day (laughs) sometimes can be a good goal to have rather than being scattered and answering emails or all these emergencies that spring up. Mm -hmm. So if you accomplish one, two or three things a day to this completion, I think that's a good day because you have all these other things that are going around. And insofar as clearing space, you know, I, I'm not sure I figured that one out either. My partner bought dog leashes, so I'd go out and take the dogs out at least at noon. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> people are saying to me, you don't take your dogs out. And as you uh, speak, I have a dog upstairs. And I feel so guilty because I haven't taken her out. <laughs> See? You know what I'm talking about. What plagues yeah. us. All right. So many educational leaders put in long hours. What advice would you give leaders about maintaining balance? Yeah, I think that's what we've been kind of circling around here. And again, I don't have fast and hard rules about this, but again, making space for yourself. One thing that I've gotten into this summer, maybe it's a seasonal thing to switch it up, but this summer what I've been doing is at five or six o'clock, I go swim in the lake. There's a lake a mile away. I swim up and down the shoreline. It's like Washington and I'm going to miss it, you know, once it gets cold. So I'm going to have to find a replacement for it. And there's something wonderful about swimming in a lake because it feels kind of dangerous. You know, it's sort of like, that's my thought. Could have a heart attack and drown and nobody would see me. (laughs) Or I'd be hit by a boat or something. But, you know, you keep it close into shore. But there's this sort of danger element to it that I think is kind of fun. And at the same time, it's such a peaceful activity because you're just, you know, skimming across the top of the water and looking around and seeing beauty, you know, and that slows you down. Swimming is not an activity that I do fast. 
So maybe it has something to do with that. Choose activities that slow you down rather than racing through them. Because I could go to the gym for 30 minutes and run around from machine to machine, but I don't think it slows me down as much as like the swimming does or run does through the park or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's just my personal thing. I think everybody probably has their own personal ways of dealing with their stress, but slowing down helps forcibly through whatever activity you're doing. Well, that's important to know yourself well enough that you know that you need to engage in activities that slow you down. So thank you so much for that. Now, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Probably don't pursue it with such gusto because once you forcibly push it on to people, they don't respond well. Mm -hmm. When I think back to my younger self, I remember talking to my friend Carrie. We were in our 20s. And we were walking to dinner one night and she said, Paul, we're at the top of the world. We're doing our game. We're the leaders of tomorrow. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And then I think about that. I was like, it takes patience to become a leader. I know some people have the power to forcibly put themselves inside a leadership role, but that's not my style, number one, because I never think that I know enough and slowing down and sort of being OK with the time and pace that it takes to become a leader, I think, is really important, especially for a younger self who maybe that's the only thing that they want or one of the things that they most want to pursue. And I think a lot of younger people do because they see how screwed up the world is. Mm-hmm. And so they want to make a difference immediately. And they can and through their own ways and so forth. But there's also something from just absorbing and being and and working through and being present with it and with others around it. And I think that's really an important thing that I think I would tell myself is to live and absorb and be present and continue on the path that you are because you know it'll work out and you will find your way. That's perfect. Thank you so much for that. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed? I think that people are too hard on themselves, oftentimes, especially leaders. And I also forgot a leader that I really admire, too. Her name was Pat Wasley. She was the dean of the College of Ed and the University of Washington for years. And again, she brought the same traits that I talked about before with all the others, the ability to build community and laugh and be quick and also to bring people along and having patience for that. Something I just admire. But I think one thing that I've noticed in a lot of folks who work in education as leaders or in teachers is they're very hard on themselves because they want to do it right and they believe in what they're doing and they have passion for it. And when you have passion for things, it's hard not to be hard on yourself, I think, because you're always thinking about how you could do something better. And time brings you there. Time being present and being part of a community will bring you there, mm-hmm. as well as you know, study and all the rest of that. That's pretty important, too. But it's that idea of not being so critical, because if you're critical on yourself, chances are you might be critical on others. Um, I think it's important to give yourself some slack and to understand and to be able to say you're sorry and you're wrong, mm-hmm. even to yourself. I think is a really important thing to remember. And it causes a lot less heartache in the end. You're a human being with flaws and it's okay to show those flaws to other people and share of yourself. So, Paul, I really want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you. I really like sharing with you and I gained a lot from this as well. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. 
So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.